I know that we've all had situations and circumstances where life has taken a turn that we didn't expect, and it leaves us in disillusionment, perhaps in despair, at least in a state of confusion or uncertainty. Sometimes these can be immediate experiences, a phone call, uh, a piece of news about a family member, um, you know, a sudden loss of a job, these kinds of things that can come pretty quickly. Sometimes this kind of experience of disillusionment and despair can come from just the continual drip, drip, drip of everyday life, the mundane, the ordinary, uh, and a sense of over time just wondering, okay, what is my life for? Where is it going? What's it heading to? We pick up, our, our text tonight is Matthew 17, and we pick this up in a situation where the disciples have just had one of those pretty quick turns from things were going well to suddenly things aren't making sense. Just prior, if you've got your Bible, open up to Matthew 17, but just prior to this uh, moment of Jesus's transfiguration, which we are looking at together tonight, the disciples had encountered um, a troubling word from Jesus, to say the least. They Uh, There was this exchange between Peter and Jesus where Jesus says, says, who do do people say that I am? And they kind of said, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. And then Peter says, well, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes. This is verse 21 of chapter 16. And I'm going to be killed and on the third day be raised. I don't know if they heard the raised part. But Jesus, uh, Peter responds to that, far be it from, from, uh, from you, Lord. This should never happen. And then Jesus has really strong words to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. Your plan is different than my plan for what it means to be the Messiah. So we pick this up with the disciples in a situation of great disillusionment because Jesus doesn't just say, I'm going to go die. Then he says, you know, I want you to take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. I want you to die with me. And this is just not the way the script was supposed to unfold in their own understanding. So they're in a place of disillusionment and despair. Lots of things can do this to us because we're human. We have a very finite perspective on life and on our circumstances, and we have very limited power. We can't produce the kinds of circumstances or results that we want to, and so we're often subject to these twists and turns that lead us to wonder and to question. Um, a trivial example, uh, we've got four kids, and they, many of them played soccer at a young age. And so when you get four-year-olds out playing soccer, which Claire did recently, um, a couple years ago, um, it's interesting. So they've been put into a situation of change and confusion. If you watch four-year-old soccer, there's a lot of confusion out there. Um, and can be pretty, like, uncomfortable. And the one thing that kids that age do when they're on the soccer field, probably more than they do chase after the ball, is they look up at mom and dad and they wave. Like, hey, mom, hey, dad. And, uh, and I think that's a good illustration of the kind of thing that's going on in this moment in Matthew 17. A situation of change, of confusion, disillusionment, uncertainty. I'm looking to someone to be a rock, to be an anchor. Because what we need in life 
in those moments in particular, but really throughout our lives, especially as we walk by faith, is we need a vision of the glory of God who is beyond us, who's outside of us, who's majestic, whose experience never includes a turn that he didn't expect, and who's never surprised by the turns that our life takes. And this is what God gives to the disciples, to Peter, James, and John in particular. Jesus, verse 1 of chapter 17, takes them up and leads them to a high mountain. Mountains, places where you can see forever from the top, something has to do with this. But also, more importantly, when you think about the story of God and creation from Genesis forward, mountains, particularly back to Moses, are significant. This is where Moses went up to encounter the living God in a place of disillusionment, a place of scarcity, having just been rescued out of Egypt, but not knowing exactly where they were going, what they were doing, who they were. God calls Moses up onto the mountain to meet him, to speak to him, to provide a kind of refuge for him and for all of his people. And so Jesus takes this well-worn path with Peter, James, and John to the top of a mountain. And at the top of the mountain, they don't get a solution. They don't get an explanation. Well, here's exactly why Jesus just spoke about the cross in this way. And so often that's what we want when we're in these situations. We want an answer. God, give me an answer. I want to know why I'm going through this. I want to know what's going on. I want to know how it's going to turn out. They didn't get any of that. But what they got was so much more needed and and important for them and for us. They got a vision. A vision, a visual experience, also an auditory experience. What did they see? Verse 2, Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. The glory of Jesus was unveiled. What had been veiled in his humanity, what had been diminished or unclear, was suddenly lifted. You think about Moses when he encountered God at the mountaintop, that his face shone with the glory of the Lord, and when he spoke, the veil had to be lifted. Well, Moses just encountered God on the mountaintop. Jesus is God on the mountaintop. And now, His face shines like the sun, we're told. That glory which had been hidden was now unveiled for a moment, for a a split second. We don't know exactly how long. Clearly, Peter wanted it to be for a long time because he wanted to build these tents up there. Um, but But for a moment, at least, James and John and Peter saw who Jesus really was. The Messiah, the King, It's interesting, I would love to know what took place in the six days between Jesus' words about the cross and this experience at the mountain. We don't know what went on, but I can be pretty sure, I think, and at least, uh, I mean, I don't know, they probably talked for hours, I'm not sure, but you have to wonder if they didn't just more and more start to go, did we get it all wrong? 
Seriously, like they were meeting when Jesus was out, you know, praying all night. They were just back there worrying. What in the world did he just say about the cross and taking up our cross? What, what does that mean? That's crazy. Maybe we need to abandon ship. And his glory is unveiled to them at the top of the mountain. A divine glory. Maybe also a, a glorified humanity. Jesus is both. His clothes are as bright or became white as light. They, they, they see him. Do you see him? They also hear something. They, well, they see something else. They see a bright cloud that envelops them on the mountain. Verse 5. They, well, they see Moses and Elijah there, too. That had to be kind of surprising. But not surprising at all in light of what comes next, this auditory. So there's another, this bright cloud back to the days of Moses on the mountaintop envelops them, and out of the cloud a voice speaks. This is my beloved son, or my son, my beloved one, with whom I am well pleased. The same exact words that have been spoken from the voice from the heavens right after his baptism. Do you remember in Matthew 3? You didn't get it wrong. This is my beloved son. This is the Messiah. This is the king. He is the one that's going to lead you to life and to victory. He's, it's not a mistake. You're not on the wrong team. He's going to do it. But then the voice adds these three words. Listen to him. Moses represents the law. The one who spoke for God who declared God's intentions to his people, the Torah. Elijah represents the prophets who spoke with fire and passion about the, the, the glory of God and about his heart for his people and about his holiness and about his hatred of sin and his deep love for the people of God. And this voice is saying, this one, he supersedes Moses. He surpasses Elijah. He stands above them all. Listen to him. The one whose face is shining like the sun. The significance of Jesus as Messiah, as King, is unveiled visually, and it's affirmed audibly in this experience at the top of the mountain. What do they, how do they respond? Look back at the passage at verse 6. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. There's this pattern. If you go back through Scripture and study the times when humanity encounters divinity, a theophany, a moment of God unveiling himself, that it's responded to with great terror and a kind of being undone. One of my favorite places where this happens is in Revelation 1, when John on the island of Patmos sees a vision of the glorified and exalted Jesus, and it says, I fell on my face as though dead. The greatest twist in human history in somebody's life is Job's. And Job doesn't get an explanation for his suffering for the twist, the painful one. 
He doesn't get greater understanding about his circumstances. But he has an encounter with the living God. And I'd have to think that in this encounter, as it was for Job, it silenced him. That for Peter and James and John, as they're struggling with what had been revealed to them through Jesus a few days ago, that when they fell on their faces terrified, they were no longer concerned with all the things they'd been talking about late into the night, the days leading up to this. That suddenly things were clear in a way that wasn't the clarity they thought they needed, but was so much more what they needed. And so they're lying there on their faces, terrified in the presence of one whose power is so great, whose wisdom has no limits, whose presence extends to every corner of the earth. And my guess is that deep in the midst of their terror, that they were okay. And look at what Jesus does next. It's maybe my favorite part of this text. Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. It's amazing. The glorified, exalted king, the one that they'd just seen, the one about whom the voice was speaking. And isn't this God's way with us? To be gentle, to be personal, to touch? They're terrified. God is so big. God's glory is so great. God's power, what they saw just and heard, and it was what they heard even more than what they saw that caused them to fall down, was so spectacular. And yet God, that spectacular, glorious, radiant one, reaches through the person of the Son and touches them and says, get up and don't be afraid. Not only were they afraid of the encounter, but my guess is that when Jesus says, and have no fear, or don't be afraid, that he's also speaking about what had happened six days earlier. Or what happened in your life last week that you don't understand. The response to this encounter with the glory of God is not to build tents and be impetuous like Peter was in verse 4. But it's to hear the voice. What did he say? What did the voice say? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. What did Jesus just say? Verse 24 of chapter 16. If anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life, which you'll want to do all kinds of ways, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? Rise up and do not fear. James, Peter, John... I've got it. I'm the glorious king. 
Now follow me. I know you don't understand. I know in your life, perhaps last week or last month or maybe tonight, you don't really understand what's going on, why the, 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 the race course that God has set for you took the turn that it did that you'd rather it didn't take. But what we need is not an explanation. It's not ultimately a solution. But we desperately need a vision of the glory and grandeur of our King who is with us in the moment, who is sovereign over the details of our lives, and who's able to steer us through this path as we simply listen to Him and bow before Him and follow Him. In closing, how might this happen? I'd suggest to you both in receiving the vision and in hearing his word, that like they did in verse 1 of chapter 17 and walked up the mountain, they took a well-worn path where God historically had met his people. What are the well-worn paths that in our disillusionment and in our despair and in our confusion and in our wrestling with life, the life of faith, that we can walk down with Jesus to encounter him in his glory. To know that it's going to be okay. To see him exalted and glorified. There are simple things like opening up the scriptures where he speaks. Getting on your knees to pray where he speaks where he is present. Gathering with a community of believers like we did yesterday on the retreat or like we're doing right now, where he speaks. Meeting with brothers and sisters in the faith throughout the week ahead in neighborhood groups where he will be and he will speak. I'm not suggesting that every time you open up the Bible, you see the glory of the Lord as the disciples did. Every day they spent with Jesus, they didn't see him in this way. But I am 100% confident that as we take these well-worn paths where God has said that he will, by his grace and mercy, meet with his people, that we will see him. Some days it'll feel average, but some days he'll undo us by his grace and mercy with a vision of his glory that we so desperately need. And then he'll say, rise up. And do not fear and follow me to where I'm leading you. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful to you for your kindness to make yourself known through your Son. And I pray, Lord, that you would manifest your glory to us as you did with Peter and James and John, that you would make your glory clear. And I pray this especially for those of us tonight who are disillusioned or who are despairing or who are confused. Show us your glory, O God.
Ultimately, we don't want a solution. We don't want an answer. We do in some ways, but what we want most of all is we want you. We so long to see you as you are and to be empowered by you, to follow you, to be given courage and strength and endurance, to walk forward with you as your disciples. Thank you that you're patient with us as you were patient with Peter and James and John even after this vision. God, we praise you. We love you. Set things in their right perspective, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.